0: Welcome back to another episode of Piedia Today. I am joined here as always by my colleague, Dr. Scott Masson. I am Dr. Bill Friesen. And today we are discussing a very different and very curious and very interesting text. There's a lot of mystery that hangs over the text that we're looking at today. It is none other than the great Arthurian romance, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And it ties into a long, rich tradition of a number of different medieval literatures. And so just to get us started here today, uh, Dr. Masson, would you uh, lead us into the beginning of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight and what is written there, starting in stanza one?
1: Yeah, thanks, Bill. Great to be with you uh, today. Um, I am going to read from the translation uh, by J.R.R. Tolkien. I I often use that uh, uh, because I tend to use the anthologies that come out, uh, use that in recent years by Seamus Heaney, the Nobel Prize winning Irish poet. But, uh, but I like uh, Tolkien's translation as well. So I'll read from it here. When the siege and the assault had ceased at Troy and the fortress fell in flame to firebrands and ashes, the traitor who the contrivance of treason, their fashion was tried for his treachery, the most true upon earth. It was Aeneas the noble and his renowned kindred who then laid under them lands and lords became of well nigh all the wealth in the western isles. When royal Romulus to Rome his road had taken, in great pomp and pride he peopled it first and named it with his own name that yet now it bears. Tyreus went to Tuscany and towns founded Langebert in Lombardy uplifted halls and far over the French flood Felix Brutus on many a broad bank and Bray, Britain established full fair, where strange things, strife and sadness, at whiles in the land did fare, and each other grief and sad gladness oft fast have followed there. So this is uh, tra- Tolkien's translation. I mean, what uh, immediately strikes the reader and he's managed to preserve is the alliterative uh, features of the m- medieval verse there. you can. I tried to emphasize that the reading wasn't perfect by any means, but it's uh, interesting to my mind. I, I tend to introduce this text um, with a reading from that first section there because it, it uh, mentions a few things that have been features of the course as I teach it. Um, up to this point namely the uh, battle of troy uh which is interesting that it's being mentioned this is the 14th century and we're in we're in england and nonetheless they're referring back to the trojan war and the consequences of that so reference to troy then to aeneas the noble now aeneas the noble is not aeneas uh of uh, the the hero of the aeneid uh but uh, his uh son or his grandson he might be his grandson thank you yeah and then a reference to Romulus and Rome the founding of Rome and then moving on to uh the Italian Renaissance so to Tuscany and uh, and Langeberg in Lombardy so now we're in northern Italy and then finally to Felix Brutus which who's again a uh uh descendant of the famous Brutus who oppo- Brutus who opposed uh Julius Caesar and and as a consequence is connected in at least in the mind of the British people as far as my understanding goes with, with a uh, freedom fighter uh, Caesar being seen as a tyrant and Brutus as a defender of liberty, who then of course goes to Britain, the land of liberty at least that 's my understanding that Chaucer sees uh, this uh, the, the english speaking people as being the heirs of of freedom and its sort of characteristic uh, alongside Mag- Magna Carta and so forth, this legacy of con- connections with a with a, a patriot and defender of freedom against tyranny and and so we go from there to that and uh, connect uh, this story with the epics of of Greece and Rome, no, but but it's not an epic. Yes,
0: correct. Say a little bit more about that, Scott. It's it's a romance.
1: Yes, you said that it was a romance, and it in some ways when when you read it and and you will read it, uh, we will read it at least in some detail here. Um, there are features about it that do seem rather similar. Um, there are obvious differences, though. One of them being that uh, there is no muse being invoked here. Um, secondly, there's no descent into an underworld. There's no council of the gods. The, the uh, tale that's told is not encyclopedic. It doesn't en- encompass all known knowledge per se. It's The purpose of this is not didactic primarily. Um, it's not uh, telling the whole or the most significant portion of a hero's life even. It's telling one episode, and it's one episode of an individual who's a part of a larger collective, in this case, King Arthur's court, it's just one of his knights, even if it's uh, his best knights or Gawain. Um, but all of these things, and, but it does, like the epic, have supernatural characters. So there are some points of similarity, but obvious points of difference there. So it, it, it's, a, it's a marvelous adventure with the chivalric knight errant. He has heroic quality, he's on a quest, and the quest is, uh, is an important one. Uh, strong emphasis on the courtly love tradition and so forth, but I think you wanted to say something about courtly love, did you not, Bill?
0: Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot to say here. There's a lot of background context, and so I'm just going to basically brush over the the surface layers of a lot of these things, and there, there are three major concepts we need to lay out at the front end in order to really appreciate what's happening, happening in this text. Uh, one of these, as you say, is, is this concept of courtly love. This is a concept which rises up to a large extent um, in southern France and Provencal and places like this, um, largely under the guidance, though not the direct manipulation by the very famous Eleanor of Aquitaine, um, who also presided over the rise of troubadour poetry and things like this. And essentially what courtly love is, as it evolves into this thing, which is kind of full-blooded by the time we get into the high middle ages, is this notion, uh, it's a very different notion of love than we've discussed so far. We've been talking about the love uh, between retainers and thanes and things like that and uh, and so forth. But this is a, first of all, and a lot of this stuff we now take for granted because courtly love gives us many of our templates for how we think about love in the modern world and in modern art. Um, it's love primarily of a man for a woman. To us, that seems like uh, uh, something quite obvious. Um... But the love that's oftentimes celebrated in ancient and early medieval literatures is that love of friendship, is that love of loyalty, it's the love between retainers and leaders and what have you. Um, This is a very different love. So here we shift primarily to foregrounding the love of a man for a woman. But then there's a bunch of things that come along with that. Um, Rules. And the rules are relatively clearly mapped out here. Remember, the, the high medieval mind loves rules even more than the early medieval mind. And so they literally write the handbook. I believe it's Andreas Capellanus has written the handbook during the Middle Ages on what courtly love is supposed to look like. And I'm only going to map out a few things here. You can look him up online. His, his text, uh, I believe it's called the book of the court. You know, that's Castiglione. That's later. In any event, uh, Andreas Capellanus. Um, so rule number one, of course, it's some, a love of a, of, of a man for a woman, but the woman typically in these texts has to be socially superior to the man who is in love with her. He is a social inferior who loves a social superior uh, within the, the, the social hierarchy. So that's rule number one. You might ask yourself, you know, why is it that nowadays we have all these sort of trashy love songs out there where you've got some uh, girl from the good part of town who falls in love with the boy from the wrong side of the tracks and stuff like this. Lady yeah. in the Tramp. Yes, sure. I hadn't thought of that one. Um, But you're absolutely on the mark. Why do we always tell that same sort of love arc narrative? Well, it starts with courtly love. That's why. Second of all, um, it is unrequited. She doesn't love him back. The uh, courtier who loves the woman runs around through most of the text, um, uh, sighing and pining, and she gives him the cold shoulder. She is aloof from him for most of the text. There are a few medieval texts that actually take that um expectation that preconception and actually play with it for artistic effect uh, but for the most part if we're generalizing and we have to generalize here uh, it's an unrequited love third thing it produces something that you and i i think have already talked about in other iterations but now we have to talk about it head on this notion of love melancholy. Melancholy belongs to one of the four humors, and we can talk about the four humors later on and stuff like this. Uh, but this unrequited love produces love melancholy in the lover for, uh, for his beloved. Um, and this means that he can't sleep. It uh, conduces to insomnia. It uh, takes away your appetite. It gives you a wan pale pallor. Um, you tend to dress in black a lot. Uh, so... <laughs> Uh, a goth emo thing here, but uh, in any event. And it was literally diagnosed, by the time you're in the Renaissance, they're literally writing okay. medical handbooks to deal with the physical ailment of love melancholy. Uh, read
1: Sir Richard Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy.
0: That's the one. That yeah. is it. It's back there on my bookshelf behind me. Okay. Um, don't read it colossal <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I had to read it. it.
1: It's good for sleeplessness, actually. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Insomnia, yeah.
0: Um, and then we have this fourth element that I want to talk about when it comes to courtly love. It is usually adulterous, and this is where some people get uncomfortable around the notion of courtly love. Uh, the most famous adulterous courtly love affair, which is requited, Uh, is actually between none other than Sir Lancelot and Queen Guinevere, the wife of King Arthur, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And that narrative of their adulterous love affair within the dynamics of courtly love is one of the most involved, complex, and at times controversial courtly love affairs in all of medieval literature, and more specifically in Arthurian literature. Mm -hmm. This author here that we're dealing with today um, is a particularly nuanced and deep thinking author. He knows all of the rules. Most proper uh, um, aristocrats uh, in in this historical period are relatively familiar with the rules of courtly love, but he is going to take these rules and he is going to twist and subvert and play with these rules in some really quite fascinating ways uh, around the middle of the text, middle to the latter part of the text. Uh, So we need to have all these rules in mind when we get there, because the author is messing with us using these rules. So this is one of the things we need to to, to have in mind when we read this. Um, The second thing that you talked about, uh, just what that you mentioned, um, was chivalry. What is chivalry? Uh, And the answer to that is probably several lifetimes long. So again, I'm going to be shockingly crude, brief, and uh, surface about it. If I may, that way. Sure. There arises at the beginning of the High Middle Ages, which I usually place around 1050 AD, um, a peace movement, the Pax movement. Um, This is a Christian movement. It uh, is driven forward by certain bishops and monks. Um, There are a lot of key players in the peace movement what the church realized as it was in the process of Christianization, uh, it really had a chance at the beginning of the high middle ages to sit down and think about exactly what that meant. Um, And they realized, uh, many church leaders realized that what Christianity in Europe had inherited was a war culture. And you, this culture could not operate, could not function in many senses without conflict and warfare. So if you can't eliminate warfare, what are you going to do about it? Um, And there begins a gradual process, oftentimes extremely organic and slow, whereby warfare is not just civilized, because I've heard it described like that by a number of professors, uh, but actually Christianized. How do you Christianize violence? Um, Can that even be done? Is that even a proposition that is viable? Um, And so I think one of the things that a lot of people lose sight of when it comes to the dynamics and rules of chivalry Uh, is the fact that there is a deep Christian engine driving a lot of it. Uh, This is not just an urge to be genteel. This is not just an urge to be courtly. And you're going to talk about courtliness, I understand, in just a little bit here. So we'll come back and maybe pick up some threads uh, at that point. Uh, But there's a deep Christian impulse that informs the dynamics of chivalry. Uh, And if we lose sight of that, we kind of lose sight of where this is rising from. Um, So these are not mere rules of treating... Your, uh, your enemies and your friends fairly um, uh, and whatnot. There is rather a Christian impulse behind it, and there's uh, oftentimes seemingly the assumption of some kind of refining sense on the individual that operates through chivalry that has a Christian impulse at the core of it. This ties into another thing that's difficult for a lot of modern readers to um, pick up on here. When we're dealing with aristocratic culture as we are, around the knights, the chivalry, uh, the courtliness, and all these sorts of things, um, we need to again make that distinction in our mind that these uh, aristocrats, medieval aristocrats, these knights, in this knightly culture, um, are not operating according to necessarily the same valued set or type or perspective that we are. Um, When we're right at the front end, this is actually a Greek and Roman distinction, but it, it gets played off of to quite an extent in the Middle Ages and even into the Renaissance, that when we're talking about values, one of the ways in which we can divide values is into ethics on the one hand, ethical value, and aesthetic value on the other hand. And again, this is a common dichotomy that a lot of thinkers have drawn upon. And nowadays, primarily when we think about comportment, Uh, we tend to think nowadays in terms uh, almost purely of ethical value. Is this ethical? Is this unethical? Uh, How exactly does that play out? But to a huge extent, the aristocrat is operating according, when it comes to comportment, behavior, he or she is operating according to the second dynamic, not what is the, right or just response so they're not indifferent to that at all this is not an exclusive model rather what is the beautiful thing to do next and this actually informs a lot of what is being done in the middle ages when it comes to courtliness when it comes to chivalric gestures and things like this gowan is a master of the uh, of saying the perfectly beautiful thing at the right moment the diplomatic thing oftentimes making the perfectly beautiful gesture in some sense or another that's where his real artistry as a figure comes in here. And Gowan, by the way, not just in this tale here of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, but in many different Arthurian tales, has a relatively consistent character when it comes to this. He's known for his chivalry, and even more than his chivalry, he's known for his courtliness. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott, did you want to say a little bit, a, bit, a little bit more about courtliness?
1: Well, it struck me while you were saying that, there's this uh, famous... Uh, I don't know if it's a proverb. Um, Manners maketh man. Uh, And uh, Gowan is the representation of ideal manhood in the sense that his manners uh, are perfect in every sense, uh, are said to be perfect. And he seems to be representing a high ideal on that front throughout Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Um, What I wanted to say on this, what I usually say when I teach this and I do uh, annually, is again to make the connection, but also the distinction between what has happened in Greece, what has happened in Rome, and what is now happening in the high Middle Ages, which is the transition between uh, the conduct appropriate to the polis, the Greek city-state, which is politeness, and politeness involves hospitality, as we've seen all, all the way back in the Iliad and the Odyssey. There's a certain standard of an expectation of how one treats one's guest. Uh, and then this moves into the uh, the Roman world, and we find it in terms of civitas, the, the city and a civilization we get this word in english leaning on that as well so we go from politeness to to civilized but then then we come into the high middle ages and we, we can see that in in both cases in the in the greek and the roman periods there's a commonality there uh, expectation of hospitality uh, a certain uh, way of speaking which is appro- not only appropriate but uh, expected and if it's breached then there are uh serious consequences for that. We're coming to blows over that. And then finally, though, moving into this period, two things, and you mentioned them both: the, the, the court and the courtesy that derives from that, and the knight or the cheval and the chevalier from which we get chivalry. And they're slightly different, although there's an overlap here, because here in this case, the, the, the members of the court are also knights, um, and Sir Gowan being the representative of that. And What's interesting here is that it, they have Christianized, as you've said, the uh, ethical conduct of the ancient world. And now how, how have they done that? Well, in one sense, it's not that they didn't have horses in the ancient Roman world, but they weren't so strongly connected with the person uh, of the king or the knight. Whereas here they really are, they're almost seen in a, in, in a unity. And what we have here is grace perfecting nature. So we have a noble beast uh, decked out in the most gorgeous apparel and really on show as much as anything. There's a, a great deal of showmanship going on here, but it, it's not just show or art for the sake of art. It's for, it's to demonstrate some relationship of, of grace to nature. I think there, there's that element of the, of the chivalry. Uh, and you touched on that with the beauty, although you put it in a way that I hadn't thought of before, which I thought was really interesting. And then the, cur- the cur- cur- court <laughs> courtesy, the manners of the court. Um, and, and again, the courtesy here is not something that is optional, it's an expectation. And, and the court here represents in some ways the kingdom of God. So it's a messianic. There's an eschatological development here. And one of the things that's striking about the court of Sir Gawain and of King Arthur is that really there seems to be an expectation that the court of King Arthur will not sin. It's not only that they will demonstrate virtue, it's that they, they have banished sin from their midst by virtue of the fact that they are Christians. So it's a very strong claim to the power of the gospel to transform lives and in some ways there is no allowance for uh, failure and sin in this kingdom so it's a, it's it is an idealized uh, in some ways eschatological vision and i just find that very powerful and interesting And it's very different than what we saw in in rome or in greece for that matter
0: yeah one of the things we have to keep at the forefront of our minds when we're reading these tales um is that especially when we're dealing with these sort of chivalric tales, we're we're dealing with characters who are very keenly and explicitly focused on various complex forms of refinement. And uh, again, I like the way you phrase it, they're under grace. Um, There is of course a worm gnawing at the heart of Arthur's court. And that of course is that adultery between his best, uh, best knight, Lancelot Mm. and his queen. Um, and uh, we're not going to talk about it. Um, in fact, we're not even going to address it, which is a shame, but we have to limit what we talk about with these podcasts. But Mallory's Mort Arthur, which is probably the most replete and famous collection of Arthurian tales, uh, explores this in tremendous detail, uh, very dramatically, very strikingly. Um, and this is, uh, this is one of the things that runs through the heart of this perfect court, which is, in point of fact, not perfect. Mm-hmm. And uh, this author here, uh, of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, also is keenly on the watch for subtle forms of imperfection that undermine the refinement. And then we have a remodeling of how Gawain thinks of refinement by the end of the tale, which is, is really quite fascinating. You mentioned the knights, which, of course, again, you you started by reading uh, that uh, section, which is connecting first the Trojans to the Romans, and then the Romans to the English, or actually, we mustn't call them English; these are British. They probably the take,
1: British, yes, they would take exception for sure.
0: Exactly, um, and so this is one of the w- one of the traditions which gets borrowed, but then turned very much into their own thing. This this tradition of the equites. Um, the 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 ruling class of the Romans and uh, if you're a ruler of uh, the Romans you can afford things uh, luxurious things uh, to take into battle with you like horses and stuff like that you can be mounted Um, and this is very much at the practical level one of the things informing chivalry and the notion of the knight the knight is somebody who can afford the horse the armor the leisure time to uh,
1: retainers yes
0: Um, Your average person cannot afford these sorts of things, they have to be doing other stuff out there. Uh, And just a couple of last little things I'll say here about the notion of courtliness and the beautiful comportment. I sometimes uh, tell my students, I don't tell them to actually do it, but I suggest to them, you know, yes, everyone wants to get through any given day uh, behaving as ethically as they can. Um, But try organizing your day's behavior around not Uh, ethical value, but the value of the beautiful gesture Um, and see if that changes radically your comportment uh, on a given day. Because a lot of people say that it does, it does change the way I behave myself, especially in relationship with other individuals around me. Um, So there's a number of things that I just wanted to touch on very quickly. Um, What more do we need to set up by way of context here? I suppose we ought to talk a little bit about this um, I, I do want to get to the story itself, but we do need to speak very, very briefly about the fact that this is not just medieval or chivalric or courtly literature or romance or any of these things. This is also simultaneously Arthurian, and Arthurian literature makes up a very large, uh, very rich block of medieval literature. Um, it's, a, it's, it's essentially its own literature uh, in its own rights um and so i just again i could uh, speak for hours and hours and hours about the development and uh evolution of arthurian literature which of course is uh, unlike most other uh literatures um is a living literature to this very day it is continue that we are continuing continuing to contribute to that canon um anyway So I'm only going to speak about, again, a few brief things around Arthurian literature. A, question number one, was there actually a historical King Arthur? We talked about the historical uh, basis of uh, the Trojan War and the Iliad and all this kind of thing. Was there actually a historical Arthur? Mm. Easy to answer that one. No. No not in the sense that we talk about him around most Arthurian literatures. The first mention of anybody who may or may not have been the historical seed or grain of sand, if we want to speak in terms of a pearl or something, uh, who gave rise to Arthur and the Arthurian tradition is uh, mentioned by a writer called Gildas. Gildas is a Romano-British priest who was very, very angry.
1: as you would be if you were a Romano-British priest. <laughs>
0: yes, one is. And he writes a text which many people try to treat as a historical text, and it is in fact not a historical text. It is a theological, penitential text full of condemnation for the sins of the British people who end up being punished by uh, God for their sins by uh, having their land conquered by pagan barbarians. And, of course, by this we mean Anglo-Saxons. <laughs> <laughs> Gilda itself uh, is, uh, writes essentially a screed uh, against the British people uh, saying, you have it coming. You're such a bunch of awful, sinful, etc., etc., etc. cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Luckily, we got a bit of a break by God's grace uh, because uh, along came a leader who was a bit of a holdover from the Romans. Um, this one Ambrosius Aurelianus, if you want the name. Who, uh, who unified the very ununified British against this invading force. And in a series of 12 cataclysmic battles, for the time being, defeated and stopped the, on, uh, the onrush of the Anglo-Saxon invaders. And then Gildas is writing in a time of comparative peace in which the British are sinking back into sin again. Ergo, he has to write his text. And the text is it's translated by John Morris. I've got a copy of it here. It's not the kind of thing you easily find. Um, so it's, it's relatively uh, rare, but it is the earliest text to speak about anything Arthurian. But you might say, Dr. Friesen, uh, Umbr- uh, Ambrosius Aurelianus is not Arthur. Quite right. Uh, he is later, this individual Ambrosius Aurelianus is said to fight the last battle beside the actual Arthur. And this is by the historian Nennius. And then this gets picked up and expanded upon. By the way, I've got a screen share here. Uh, with the podcast. You won't be able to see it, but uh, I'll quickly dive into it in case you're watching this on YouTube. Uh, over here, not of that, but instead of, there we are. That is the site according to legend, not according to history. So let's be careful because there's a lot of tinfoil hats that come out at this point in the conversation. Um, this is the legendary so-called site of the last great battle. This is Mount Baden, and that uh, you're looking there at the foundations of a incredibly ancient fortress. We don't know much about its history. It's pre-Roman and was probably uh, reoccupied after the Romans left and the Anglo-Saxons invaded. Um, But is this really the site of that battle? Was there ever an Ambrosius Aurelianus around that? Um, It's all a matter of legend and speculation.
1: Whereabouts? Where is that located in Britain?
0: Uh, You know what? I'm not entirely sure. I believe it is somewhat in the Center towards the north a little bit, if memory serves me correctly, but I'm going way back. I looked looked at a map maybe a decade ago to get a a sense of this. Hmm. Um, In any event, uh, so historians begin to work off of this. Bede works off of this. Nennius works off of this. Very famously Geoffrey of Monmouth um, uh, writes a great deal of quote-unquote history about um, Arthur and his legend and all this kind of stuff that stretches into the background, but it's all very confused. Um, and Jeffrey just openly lies in order to serve his narrative purposes and to flatter his patrons and stuff like this. And Geoffrey is probably the most famous historian of the middle ages to deal with the legend of Arthur or Arthur, <laughs> Arthur, sorry, Freudian slip there. And Arthur. he's lying. Yeah. I don't call him Geoffrey of Monmouth. I call him Jeffrey the liar. Um, he just, and you can demonstrate actually that he was just making stuff up off the top of his head to, uh, to suit his uh, convenience. But he is nevertheless the most famous quote unquote historian to treat this legend, the legend mm-hmm. of Arthur. You also have a, another strand of literature which carries the legends of Arthur into the high Middle Ages where we encounter him with Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and that these are Uh, what we call the Welsh sources, Welsh folktales for the most part. Um, And they're collected here and there, and they give us a very different, very Celtic barbaric image of the early Arthur. Uh, Very, very strange. And that Arthur doesn't match up at all with the very chivalric courtly Arthur that we encounter in the high Middle Ages. He is a very different uh, uh, creature. He is a Celtic barbarian war leader, uh, a very... Savage and crude sensibilities in at many turn, um, so um, and Gawain is back there from that uh, that uh, strand as well. Many of the, the the more famous figures in the Arthurian um, universe, you might say. So that's the second source. So yeah, so there's two divergent textual sources leading into the Middle Ages that give us the legend of Arthur. On the one hand, we have the historical sources historical in quotation marks and on the other hand we have the literary and folktale sources which bring uh arthur to us and these two fuse together in the high middle ages and give us the arthur that we know particularly in pop culture and stuff like that nowadays
1: okay well this uh, this is news to me and it's devastating to know that there is no king arthur i (laughs) thought this was still a disputed matter you seem pretty clear about this
0: I'm I'm reasonably confident that no, there is no Arthur. There's actually a fascinating backhanded reference to him in one of the oldest Celtic pieces of poetry that survived to us, the Gdodhan. I'm probably massacring the pronunciation there. Sorry, the Gdodhan I was uh, massacring the pronunciation, whereby it mentions a certain Celtic hero fighting against the anglo saxons This is a uh, 8th century poem. and he is slaughtering Anglo-Saxons left, right and center as one, uh, as a hero is supposed to do. Um, and it says he slew many men on the battlefield. He was terrifying that day, but he was no Arthur. Uh, so uh, immediately you have to sort of stop and think, okay, look, this, this Arthur figure is quite prevalent uh, all across the sources, not just historical. People are talking about this King Arthur around hearths in the dark ages, in the early middle ages, before we get to the version that we inherit here with Sir Gowan in the Green Knight.
1: So what's the explanation for the invention of an Arthur then? I mean, this is the opposite of a euhemerism. It's, a, it's yeah. the invention of a figure historically.
0: Yeah, essentially it's, it's his uh, apotheosis, He's his translation, if you will, into this saint-like, god-like figure, which, by the way, falls at the end of the medieval period. Arthur is a bad king in most of the tales by the end of the medieval period. That's typically how he's shown. So he goes up and then he drops. Um, and... When I'm teaching Sir Gavin the Green Knight, actually, I treat this particular point as it's good that you raised it here uh, quite extensively. Again, we don't have time to do that today, sadly. But I will say this the legend of Arthur begins in the early Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, when the Romano British have lost their civilization. They are a people scattered to the four winds, um, their cities are lying in ruins, their culture is in tatters. Their art is uh, only whispered, dimly remembered rumors around campfires and what have you. At certain points, Bede and Gildas uh, and other historians tell us about uh, the uh, Romano-British living like animals in forests and caves and hiding where they could. So the attraction of a sort of messianic figure. And that is the language oftentimes is used around the early Arthur. The attraction of a messianic figure like Arthur, who will unite the people again and rally them against the darkness, uh, the darkness of not just barbarism, but also, of course, the actual invaders, um, is enormously attractive. It's also a legend which can operate as a solace, as a, uh, as a balm to the wounded pride of the, this Celtic people. Uh, The bottom line is they were being defeated consistently on the battlefield and anytime they don't get defeated, anytime they actually do uh, win the victory, uh, this is a wonderful but rare moment. And the person who led them to the greatest series of victories was this legendary Arthur. And uh, some people might sneeringly say, well, yes, but Arthur is just essentially British propaganda, so they don't feel quite so bad about getting defeated again and again and losing all their civilization and culture. Maybe maybe not i 'll let them debate that on on their own time, um, but yeah, Arthur comes in very much and gets his start as a savior figure uh, who 's going to bind the celtic pe- the, the British people back together again when um, we find his uh, the, the folk roots of his legends obviously start uh, as far as we can trace them um, in Wales and Cornwall as mm. you might this is yes. where the people where the British people have been driven ultimately by the invading Anglo-Saxons um,
1: lands End, yeah
0: <laughs> and here's where the, the, the forests are dense and the hills, uh, the hill country is rough and this is where you can actually fight off uh, like uh, in a guerrilla campaign invading Anglo-Saxons and one of the great Anglo-Saxon kings Ofa actually decides yeah you know what uh, we don't really want this whale section anyway I'm just going to build a giant palisade here Ophir, <laughs> they call it And uh, there it is. It's, I think, 60-some-odd miles long where he just says, okay, that's the limit, and we don't want that part over there. Um, So, But then you have to also understand that with the invasion of the Normans, we have this uh, this French sensibility come back in, which is being influenced, in turn, by some of the culture of Brittany and what have you. So that comes in and fuses, and you see this growth in England proper of Arthur and his legend as we know it today. And people get very excited about that. Um, you saw how they were trying to invest themselves in Trojan and Roman traditions. And Arthur gives them another strand by which to move into this. One of the things I want to st- stress here, both with Arthurian...
1: Um, this, this poet is not rooted in London. He's West Midlands, right? A very different and challenging dialect. This is not the easiest poem to read in medieval English. This doesn't. When one reads it, it's not like reading Chaucer.
0: No, it's, um, I, I think my Middle English is pretty good, if I dare say so myself, but uh, I find reading and translating the original uh, very challenging. Uh, this is not easy. This is a, a dialect, I can't remember if it's out of Kent or someplace like that, but it's the dialect also, this is another point that's very worth... Uh, no, it's,
1: it's West Midland, so it's west, west Mid- of Birmingham, yeah.
0: Um, is that this is not just a urban aristocrat who write, writes this. This is a rural... Nobleman this mm. is who lives out there in that nature that we see to some extent in the hunts and in the travels of Gowan and what have you. This is somebody who has first hand knowledge of this and we 'll talk about this later now well, you
1: me? can see it in the landscape he describes this up to the world and so forth in Liverpool area right up up North Wales, Anglesey mentions all these landmarks and
0: that 's right um, but the the point I want to make about um, all the in Arthurian influences coming into this tale here. Is that when you're thinking about Arthurian literature in general, and Sir Gawain and the Green Knight in particular, we have to realize that this is like a tapestry. It is densely woven from a a vast, vast number of different threads which come together in fascinating ways and get coordinated by uh, the writers of Arthurian literature and this poet here in particular. And so we mustn't skim over a lot of the details. Uh, A lot of the details here uh, lock into one another in very elegant and meaningful ways it's it's you have to see the whole as well as the particulars when reading Sir Gawain and the Green Knight
1: okay is there anything else we want to say I think we're going to do another part to this because we uh, we've already gone on at a fair uh, we length here uh, without actually dipping into the poem proper do we want to say anything about the I mean the the meter the rhythm of the poem at all I mentioned the alliteration is there anything else I mean the bob and wheel anything should we say something about that can you I don't say want, something briefly?
0: Yeah, I don't want to get too far into the, I mean, this is uh, this is mechanical stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the story is part of what is known as the alliterative revival um, in medieval England, um, and you might think of this, we didn't really talk about this in Beowulf, but it, it apes in certain ways the form of poetry as we encountered it with Beowulf. That is to say you've got two stressed syllables in the first half, two stressed syllables in the second half. Oftentimes, but not always, do they alliterate. We see in Anglo-Saxon poetry, um, the adherence to alliterative patterns is very strict. Whereas mm-hmm. here, it is very, very loose. We also see something we don't see in uh, Old English poetry, which is uh, a lot of end rhyme. Um, the anglo saxons considered that crude. It is not considered crude uh, in this period here. Um, we have, as you mentioned, the bob and wheel. Um, which needs to be mentioned. Uh, we've got usually the bob is, if memory serves me correctly, a two uh, two syllable, two stress syllable chunk, and then you've got the, the following, which is, involves three stress syllables. But again, they don't adhere to that. The thing that's important about the bob and wheel is that many people, and this is controversial again, so don't take this as authoritative. Um, many people see the bob and wheel as commenting back upon the stanza which has gone before. Um, or enriching it, or elaborating upon it. But it's always in conversation with the stanza which went before. So I don't know if that helps people read uh, Sir Gavin and the Green Knight, or if that hinders, um, but that's the going theory out there. We should also mention, just very briefly, it is a, as with the comedia, it's very carefully um, subdivided. It has 101 stanzas divided into, into four things called fits, F-I-T-T-S, Uh, which is unusual. Um, But the arrangement of the stanzas, the elements that go into the stanzas um, uh, and how they play off of one another uh, is extremely important to understanding the text. Amongst other things, this poet is obsessed with uh, medieval aesthetics. Um, And so you have to pay attention to numerology. You have to pay attention to where certain things are occurring in the text. You have to pay attention to color um we've got three hunts three kisses we've got everything is being balanced against everything else in here and so we really need to slow down and pay attention to that that's all i've got to say about um the format of the poem itself the only other thing i'd say is that it comes from a certain manuscript collection a codex ms cotton nero a x etc but yes important about that is that there are three other poems in there
1: Yes, and they're important and good ones at that.
0: Yes, they are. Uh, probably the other most famous poem in that collection is Pearl, or the Pearl poem as it's sometimes known, um, which is an intensely theological, not to mention intensely painful uh, poem. It's about a father's loss of his daughter. daughter. Yeah. Anyone who cavalierly says that medievals and Renaissance people, because of high mortality rates, uh, were uh, indifferent to the death of children, ought to read the Pearl
1: yeah it's it's heart-wrenching it's really yep. wonderful it's a wonderful poem though
0: and it's a wonderful theological answer to the problem of pain and loss and mm. uh, and, and things like this um magnificent uh, poem that uh, bears a lot of study on its own uh, and sadly is very understudied you've also got uh, patience and what is known as cleanness some people change that to <laughs> Uh, Also, uh, those other two are also deeply explicitly Christian poems. The only one that isn't is Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It's not explicitly Christian, but we know that very, very, very likely um, two, if not all three of those other poems were written by the same author.
1: Well, they're penned in the same hand. It's a manuscript. So, yeah.
0: So same scribe, same uh, author. Um, Although
1: the scribe is not the author, one thinks, right?
0: No, no, no. You You can't conflate those two. Um, And we know that the diction levels are similar. The uh, poetic habits are similar. The treatment of motifs is similar. A lot of the rhetorical devices are similar. I mean, there's so many layers of association between all these texts here that it's, most scholars are okay with the idea that the same author composed all of them, Um, or at least um, Pearl and Patience and maybe Purity. Uh, But uh, in any event, I, I accept speculatively that they're all the same author but the most famous by far is the one we're talking about today so it's again. the
1: dialect and the dialect it's rare to have poetry in this dialect as well so that's another additional element right that would suggest that it's the same author yeah
0: yeah so beyond that we don't have to say too much about the extraneous um uh bibliographical uh or poetic nature uh, because
1: we don't know who the author is right that's another final thing that needs to be said
0: and this is why, again, we've said this before, this is one of the identifying features of medieval uh, literature. They're not terribly interested in attaching their names to a text. Um, insofar as any virtue attaches to a text, it is the virtue from the sublime, the divine, uh, and these sorts of things. So um, again, it's, it's anonymous, and that's not surprising at all. It's, one could almost predict that. Um, it was discovered in 1839, sat on the back shelf for a long time until Tolkien and uh, E.V. Gordon, nobody knows who E.V. Gordon is, and that's okay. I uh, but they popularized it in the mid-20s uh, by doing critical, uh, putting together critical editions of it. And then all of a sudden, people realized, holy crow, this is a gem. This is magnificent. How, how did we miss this? So since then, it, uh, the tale itself has never looked back in terms of readership and uh, scholarly treatment nowadays
1: yeah i don't think we're we're dealing with it but i really would commend uh, the pearl to uh, audiences for the reason that we've suggested it really is moving and it's a it's a beautiful and powerful and as you say theologically rich poem dealing with suffering and loss um worthy of study for sure but then that goes for many texts that we're not dealing with at least on this uh iteration of paideia today
0: yeah it's um it's a bit unfortunate the, the we know a few things about uh, the author, very little. As we said, he's, he's a rural nobleman. Uh, that's usually something asserted because of his uh, uh, intimate knowledge, as you've already mentioned here, of uh, uh, of these parts of England. Uh, also, the hunting scenes are far more detailed and pragmatic in places than they need to be. And this is somebody who actually got in there and did hunting. Hunting, by the way, is an aristocratic, a distinctly aristocratic undertaking in the High Middle Ages. That Very much so, yeah we'll talk about that later as well. Another couple of very strange things here. This is an erudite, an enormously erudite writer. Uh, We know this from a number of things. He makes a lot of references to learned sources. You uh, wouldn't imagine that living out in his castle in the middle of nowhere uh, he would have access to these, but clearly he he, he, uh, had been educated on a lot of these fronts. we also know that he uses a large number of French loanwords in places. Um, seems to have understood French at quite an elevated level, but he uses the French loanwords very strategically. They're not random, they're not scattered, they tend to be in courtly scenes when he's dealing with courtly sort of operations and things like this, and then they're gone again. So he knows when to use them and when to drop them. And the last thing which is kind of interesting about the language of this poet, is that there are a large number of Scandinavian loanwords in here. Um, this is completely anomalous. We, we really don't know why, but uh, there they are and they constitute in places a fair percentage of the language that we're looking at. Um, and again, he uses them only in strategic spots and then he drops them again. So he's not just uh, using them at random. So we have that date usually for composition we say is somewhere between about 1375 and 1425 if anybody cares.
1: Chaucer's age.
0: Yes. Yes. Very much sure. Right in Chaucer's wheelhouse, but very different literature than what Chaucer is writing, of course.
1: So. Shall we leave it off there for this episode mm-hmm. and pick it up next time. And mm-hmm. we'll get into the machinery of the poem properly, the four fits and, uh, if you're following along with us, by all means read it, and I think you're you'll take great delight in it. It's a it's a roaring tale and great great delight. Um, and follow Sir Gowan on his quest to. Uh,
0: yeah, there's like I said, there's a lot going on in here. Very rich tale, but something that also catches people off guard is the quiet humor that often. Oh yes,
1: it's funny. It's really funny.
0: the 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 poet is not just he. He has things that he is treating very seriously with the utmost gravity but then oftentimes he will flip around and where it seems appropriate you, you almost catch the author winking at you you do yeah. so, a lot of subtle irony and what have you in here this is a this is a, a very not just an erudite writer this is a very clever right oh, it's ma-
1: it's masterful the depiction is is exceptional really you can actually see sir Gowan when he encounters the lady you can see the them in front of you, and you can almost see their faces looking at one another. It's so well done. Yeah, yeah. and you will
0: see this right with the opening scene, which we'll start with next time, which is uh, the bizarre entry of the Green Knight and his weird, weird proposal for entertainment, and, uh, and the court just staring at each other. <laughs> in- <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Uh, back all that humor uh, next
1: podcast. All right, well, I'm Scott Masson with Paideia today with my colleague, Dr. Bill Friesen. We shall see you next time. Take care, everyone.